The following podcast is intended for general information and entertainment purposes only. It should not be substituted for professional medical or psychological advice. Before beginning or changing a treatment plan, please consult your local healthcare professional. Season three of The Simple Life. I am Nicole Ritchie. And I'm Paris Hilton. That's hot. <laughs> Welcome back to Biopsychosocial. I am Jordan. I am a registered nerd. I didn't know we had to register for that. I'm Kayla and I'm a licensed professional creep. <laughs> <laughs> we say registered nerd all the time at work. So we wanted to start out and talk about our patrons. Yeah, I wanted to mention, so I think on our last episode, we talked about how we don't make any money off of this. And I wanted to clarify that we do have a Patreon. We don't profit off of this podcast. So what our patrons help us out with is hosting of this podcast. So our patron helps us to pay for hosting so that you guys can listen to everything recently and our entire back catalog. Um, and we don't have to worry about that and it doesn't have to come out of our pockets. So everything that we get from Patreon as of right now goes right back into the podcast. We don't profit off, we don't of, profit it off of it. No. So currently our, our patrons are Jay, Brian, Alexis, and Jill. So thank you for your continued support. If you would like to check out our patron, you can join it for as little as a dollar. For a dollar, you get a shout out. Dollar make me holla, honey boo boo. And for $3, you get a video of our podcast recordings a little bit early, um, unedited because I don't know how to edit videos. And you get to see our outfits. Uh, Kayla has a really cute um, overall on in a burnt sienna color. And I have a really cute shirt that one of my work buddies got for me. And it says, feel your feelings. And it is also in a burnt sienna color too. Yes. We did not call each other. No, we didn't. And my hair looks really curly today because it's a wash day. And mine looks really curly because I just got it done. Um, my rainbow balayage, it was a um, bleach cotton color today. And Kayla was very kind and waited for me because I have really dark hair and getting it blonde and then put the beautiful colors on. It takes a while, but I did bring her ravioli. Yeah, Kayla edits and I bring the food. Yes, <laughs> which, is, which is necessary fuel. Yes, food and, and the alcoholic beverages once in a while because sometimes we're, we're in varying degrees of sober. So you this episode well actually have you heard any news in the true crime world recently you you know i live under a rock right? <laughs> you, well you know i mean i haven't really like been keeping up to date on anything like we've i think the last time we talked about how they they Call figured out the lisk guy yeah. long island serial killer and the delphi murderer I read recently this story about a crypto bro who was murdered and chopped up into bits by his partner, like his oh. crypto partner, Oh, which is, you know, one of the many reasons you shouldn't go into the crypto world. Uh, correct. You could get chopped up. You could get chopped up to bits. It was pretty insane, the story. And it was like, his, it was his friend. I would never chop you up. He was a friend. I would never chop you up into bits for Thank any you. reason. We would also never crypto. No. No judgment. Well, a little, a bit, little of bit of judgment. judgment. It's basically an MLM. For yes, guys. which we are we are very deeply staunchly against anti MLM. I don't I don't want to buy your diarrhea tea. No, I, or your chapstick or whatever it is you're selling. Chapstick. No, I get my chapstick from the goat section of Ulta. Thank you very much. 
Okay, okay. You're the you're the brilliant mind. You're the beautiful mind that is in charge of, of this one, as you are the therapist I'm the among us. MC for today. I just have a lot of questions. Which is fantastic. Yeah. I wrote them down. I had ChatGPT um, outline this podcast for me because I can't organize my thoughts <laughs> appropriately. So I'm just going to go by uh, based on what she said. And um, because ChatGPT is a she. What's her name? Uh, ChatGPT. G, so Gretel. Greta. Patricia. Tung, Tungberg. Oh, <laughs> it's Greta Thunberg. Um, okay, yeah. uh, Can you imagine? Yeah. Actually, Greta, Greta Thunberg helped me outline. Greta Beatrice Thunberg. It's very nice. It's not the environmentalist, just a lady named Greta Beatrice Thunberg. Anyway. Be- it's P. Oh, uh, Peta. Patricia. <laughs> Peta. Peta. Okay. So today's episode is about psychopaths. Okay, so psychopathy, um, like many of you, is what got me interested in psychology in the first place. And um, that was my, when I got my bachelor's degree in, um, you know, I was interested in, so it's what got me interested in psychology. And I started by reading the book, The Psychopath Test by John Ronson, and fucking hated it. Um, I had, it had been in my to read list for a really long time, because, you know, so subject matter was interesting to me. Um, and I saw that my library had it in the Libby app. So if for those of you who live in the US, if you don't have a library card, get a library card because not only can you get books out from your library, but you can also have access to tons of ebooks and audiobooks that you borrow in the same way that you would borrow a book from the library. So if it's there, you know, if it's available, you get to check it out. If something you might be in a waiting list, whatever. But anyways, this one was available. I checked it out. I started reading it. I had so many notes that I was writing furiously. The first chapter was about something that had nothing to do with psychopaths. The second chapter was this guy listening to Scientologists and their perspective on why psychiatry is evil. Wait, what? I was like, why are we even entertaining this (laughs) bullshit? No. But okay. Um, And then he essentially learns about... Robert Harris psychopathy checklist, which has kind of been the foremost assessment for determining whether or not someone is a psychopath for the last several decades. Robert Hare had put decades into this research and the development of this assessment. He is still living. He's 92 or something like that. So I don't think he's doing research anymore. I hope he's not. I hope he he's just chilling. Yeah, well, he's Canadian. So oh, <laughs> not in our Congress anyway. <laughs> so Robert Hare... And I'll, I'll get, I'll come back to, there's a little bit of drama between. There's drama? There is drama between John Ronson and the people who actually study psychopaths. And it's pretty silly to me. That was the first thing I found. And actually what turned me on to reading from Robert Hare's perspective instead of this very sensationalized, very like pop psychology version of psychopathy and, and that whole thing. So. I love tea. Robert Hare was born the 1st of January, 1934. He's 92 years old. He's from Calgary, uh, Canada. He is from a working class neighborhood. He went to the University of Alberta, um, got his bachelor's degree in psychology, just like me. And later on, his master of arts in psychology. And uh, in 1960, I believe, he moved to the United States for a PhD program in uh, psychophysiology. So essentially like 
biopsych, <laughs> you know, like us. Yeah, so I guess, yeah, I was going to say like, um, the, the, the brain noodle stuff. So he was at the University of Oregon and had to leave and go back to Canada because his daughter was ill. And during that period of time, he worked as a psychologist in the prison system in uh, British Columbia. He was at the British Columbia Penitentiary for eight months. No experience, no background. He was just kind of like fly by the seat of his pants in a prison. I was going to say, first of all, that's a protected pop. That's a protected population. I don't know if it was in the 60s. Oh, my but, God. I bet it, uh, yeah. So they're like, but he wasn't, try the prisoners. He wasn't researching them. He was giving them therapy and counseling. Okay. So he was kind of taken in by some of these people who manipulated him and were, you know, able to kind of pull the wool over his eyes. And that's where he developed an interest in psychopaths and criminal behavior. He moved to London, Ontario, where he completed his PhD in 1963 at the University of Western Ontario with a dissertation on the effects of punishment on behavior. His research led him to the mask of sanity by American psychiatrist Herbie M. Cleckley, which played a pivotal role in the concept of psychopathy he applied and developed. So he mentions in the book that I read of his, he mentions Cleckley pretty frequently. He was kind of the father of research on psychopathy. He died in 1984. So this was very early psychology that he was doing. He had also a lot of like controversial work on coma shock therapy, which is when you literally put someone in a coma to try and cure them. Um, what do they think you wake up and not remember? I, I don't know. These, these are people who also thought that like back in the early 1900s, yeah, I mean, is, they is probably dunking thought that in ice water. Yeah, yeah. Could cure somebody with like opiates or something. He also thought that homosexuality was like a pathological pathology, you know, something you could pathologize. So, you know, grain of salt. But anyways, Hare built on that research further and further. The reason why he wanted to study psychopaths and come up with an assessment for determining if someone was a psychopath was both for the purposes of clinical work, so that clinicians had a, a valid and reliable measure to determine whether or not someone was a psychopath and treat them thusly or not treat them, as well as for the general public to understand what a psychopath was, what it looks like, so that they could know when, when they were dealing with one and exactly how they should navigate that situation, because it can be dangerous, obviously. The name of the book that I read is called Without Conscience, The Disturbing World of the Psychopaths Among Us by Robert D. Hare, PhD. Oh. So one of the reasons that I was really interested in looking further into this is because I wanted to really understand from an actual researcher and clinician what the difference was between antisocial personality disorder, which is a diagnosable illness in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and Psychopaths. So like ASPD, we would refer to that person as a sociopath. Psychopathy is something different. And for a really long time, I basically assumed that people were using different words for the same thing, mm. which is kind of like 75% the case. I feel like psychopath is a colloquialism. More, I mean, it's definitely used that way. Right? Yeah, it's like, oh, they're fucking psycho. Or, right. Yeah. And you're not, and you're, it's a blanket term. You're not necessarily using it to describe somebody with antisocial personality disorder. Mm -hmm. it's what, are you, used, what are you saying when you say someone's a psychopath? They're crazy. Right. They're 
they're unstable. They're in, they're unhinged. They're unhinged. Yeah, there's um, a possibility that they are going to do something dangerous, or they already have done something dangerous, or their mental status is precarious or unstable. Mm-hmm. That's that's the term for a psychopath. It's not something I would put on my di- ICD-10 diagnostic list. You know, personality disorder, sure. Um, schizophrenia, sure, mm-hmm. but not, yeah, a psychopath is not a clinical term to me. Me neither. And I mean, it's not, right? I can't diagnose someone with, um, psychopathy. So I, one of the things that I really liked and found refreshing when I started reading this book was that Hare clarified that, like, listen, you, you, the reader, cannot diagnose someone as a psychopath. No. I can because I've done all of this research. And he said, you know, not me, but hair. Yeah. Hair can, because he's done all this research, but he said, A, the only people who can use the psychopath checklist are people who have been trained in it, which is true of all measures. That's not a strange thing. Right. I have been trained in a couple of measures, um, but the vast majority of people who are going to be administering and interpreting measures in psychology are psychologists who have a, a doctorate in psychology or um, psychiatrists who are medical doctors with a specialization in psychiatry. So, I mean, I could attend a training and learn mm-hmm. how to administer the psychopathy checklist. I don't see why I would. Um, I looked into it, it's $555, no, but it's you. 16 CEUs. So that would cover my CEUs for the year. Continuing education. Should, yes. yes, for those of you not I have to have 22 to keep up my specialty. Oh, I have to have 15. Of 22 every four years. Um, oh, that's for my, that's year. on top of my license. <laughs> yeah, mine yeah, too. That's on top of my license for so. my continuing education. And this differs, by the way, from medical where diagnosing needs to be from somebody with prescriptive privileges. An APRN, a PA, a physician can diagnose. I, as a registered nurse, cannot diagnose. However, there are parameters for diseases, for kidney disease, you need to have a creatinine clearance, which is the function of your kidneys at a certain amount in order to be diagnosed with blood pressure. You have to have a blood pressure sustained over a certain level. So it's a little bit more cut and dry. There are checklists. Nurses can assess, but they cannot diagnose. You can do a nursing diagnosis, which yeah, which I think is, is weird because like if I can diagnose, I feel like a nurse should be able to diagnose. I don't want that. Mm, I, don't, I don't know. I don't think it's that big of a deal depending yeah but like um but medically is different than because well there's medications that go with sight but i don't want to diagnose somebody with high cholesterol and start them on a drug because if you diagnose you need to treat gotcha yeah (laughs) okay which is a little bit easier for me because i'm not administering medication i'm just doing treatment with people right and we can do a nursing diagnosis which is you know you know disorder body image, you know, body image distortion, where you can do certain interventions uh, to help alleviate that. Um, I'm trying to think of other nursing diagnoses, and I can't off the top of my head because I never verbiage like that. But you know, you know, lack of access to something and then you intervene as such. So it's similar to to therapy, you know, to therapy where you would diagnose and then intervene, but it's not a it's not a prescription. It's, you yeah. know, then you're not diagnosing and treating, which mm-hmm. is what nurses can't do. So number one, you have to be someone with clinical background who has um, specific training in this measure. But number two, the diagnosis of psychopathy isn't based solely upon the measure. It's also based upon the person's entire history or their myopsychosocial, as you might say. Oh. Um, burr, burr, burr. So he says himself 
Many of the examples I use are taken from published reports, the news media, and personal communications, and I cannot be sure that the individuals in question are psychopaths, even though they may have been given the label by others. So he's clarifying that, like, unless someone is your patient, you have interviewed them, you have given the measure, you have looked at their history, you cannot diagnose. So even Hare, who developed this checklist and doesn't need to be trained because he made it and has clinical experience, still can't diagnose somebody that he sees on the news. He can't right. say the Joker, if the Joker was a real person, they can't say he is a psychopath, even though, you know, yeah, he, he's he written to be one. Right. That's what I think of as a psychopath. It's like a, like a comic book villain. Yeah. I mean, it, it feels very much like over the top. Yes. Like, I can't believe a person like this exists. Kind Correct. Of thing. And there are people that I can't believe. There's a lot of people I can't believe they exist. They're not all psychopaths. He, he says their hallmark is a stunning lack of conscience. Their game is self-gratification at the other person's expense. Mm -hmm. So to clarify, when we diagnose ASPD, which I've never diagnosed no ASPD before in anybody, um, I've also never diagnosed conduct disorder in a child, which is kind of like the children's version of ASPD. Mm -hmm. um, what we're looking at is things like risky and dangerous behavior at the expense of others for one's own personal gain. So it could be that you are a rapist. It could be that you've committed arson. It could be that you have committed robbery, cruelty to animals. All of that is going to be for your own gain. So financial gain, sexual uh, gratification, um, entertainment, right? You want to mm -hmm. kick an old lady because it's funny to you because you're a sociopath. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I will... Let me clarify how he differentiates the two, because I thought this was really interesting. Because I have thoughts. So he says, in many cases, the choice of the term reflects the user's view on the origins and determinants of the clinical syndrome or disorder described in this book. Thus, some clinicians and researchers, as well as most sociologists and criminologists, who believe that the syndrome is forged entirely by social forces and, er and early experiences prefer the term sociopath, whereas those, including this writer, who feel that psychological, biological, and genetic factors also contribute to development of the syndrome, generally use the term psychopath. The same individual, therefore, could be diagnosed as a sociopath by one expert and as a psychopath by another. So he's saying like both diagnoses are valid, but mm -hmm. one of them is solely looking at like sociopath assumes a person is made and psychopath assumes that the person is born that way. That's interesting. That's kind of the difference because he differentiates the etymology of the words with psyche, of course, meaning mind, so brain and pathos meaning disease. So a disease of the brain. Um, versus socio would assume like people, you know, like people, environment, culture, society, pathos, disease. So like something went wrong there with external factors versus internal factors. That makes sense. Because when I think of a sociopath, I think of even though what they do is hideously wrong, there is a logic. There's logic there that, you know, it's not kind, it's not correct, it's not something you should do, but you can see the pattern of thinking. Mm -hmm. Like it's a logical train of events that led them to do the act that they did that we deem unacceptable by society. Psychopath seems more chaotic to me. Which is essentially what he says. Yeah, it's like, it seems like an atom bomb. One of the mar markers of a psychopath is somebody who's like, it's almost like the Ariana Grande song, like, I see it, I want it, I got it. <laughs> Yeah, there's no, they just kind I of like, the gain. I, I want to do this. I'm going to do it. So I think he uses an example of a psychopathic man who is like on his way somewhere 
and he decides that he wants some beer and realizes that he forgot his wallet at home. And instead of walking home to get his wallet, he decides to break into a gas station and rob it of alcohol just because that's what he wants to do. So why he, why shouldn't he do that? You know, in his mind, that's kind of the, he's not really thinking of how it's going to impact that business owner. If someone's going to get physically harmed, um, the, the fact that stealing is illegal and morally wrong for most of us, mm-hmm. that doesn't occur to him. He's just like, I want this. I'm going to take it. That makes, yeah, that doesn't make sense, but it makes sense. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, those of us who are not sociopaths or psychopaths are guided by our own internal system of morals as well as mm-hmm. the laws and rules of society. Yeah. These people are not. They don't yeah. give a shit. More or less, your body has checks and balances of things. Right. Physically and mentally. It's like, yeah, if you listen to your body, you're not just going to eat candy because you do need macronutrients and micronutrients to fuel your system. You're going to want a banana eventually. He also says people use the word psychopathy because of the the piece of it that says psycho, right? And people, I think I've said this before on this podcast, people associate psycho with um, psychoticism. So illnesses like schizophrenia, Mm -hmm. where you're seeing hallucinations and delusions and things like that that does not that's not what's going on with psychopathy he says psychopaths are not disoriented or out of touch with reality nor do they experience the delusions hallucinations or intense subjective distress that characterize most other mental disorders unlike psychotic individuals psychopaths are rational and aware of what they are doing and why their behavior is the result of choice freely exercised he also says sometimes the term sociopathy is used because it is less likely than psychopathy to be confused with psychoticism or insanity um, so he's essentially saying, like, psychopaths are not insane. They're perfectly no. sane. They, um, which I think... Their standard operating behavior is just not good. Their standard, yeah, their factory warranty is not so much. <laughs> like, their their baseline is not good. Um, it's like some people are mentally ill, some people are assholes. Hair eventually, yeah. at some point, determines the point. At some point, determines the point. At some point, he becomes a forensic psychologist. So a forensic psychologist is someone who um, is involved in the criminal justice system usually. Mm-hmm. So he, they're like interviewing uh, criminals or victims um, and presenting their findings to, in the court system or something like that, or like, you know, writing up a report for the court system for parole, things like that. Where was I going with that? Now I can't remember. So he's, uh, I, this is what I was going to say. So his point is that psychopathy if someone is can be diagnosed with psychopathy they cannot use the insanity defense because they're not insane no they know exactly what they were doing and that it was wrong to some degree right like they know it's illegal they just don't care yeah and it's not because we had that that gentleman that got on the we we didn't have him but we talked about the gentleman that got on the bus was in a period of psychosis and killed somebody Mm -hmm. and then he and then he came to the next day and holy shit what the hell did i do whereas somebody with yeah, someone with psychopathy wait did you press okay so as i was saying before uh you ran out of storage <laughs> on, the, on your phone um which is what we record this on just saying somebody with psycho somebody with psychosis mm-hmm. or um yeah temporary acute psychosis from one reason or another Um, medication-induced or infectious-induced, any other kinds of things that could be induced, they wake up after they've had antibiotics and a nice sleep and we're like, oh, fuck, I bit somebody's face off. That's fucking horrible. I am so sorry. Whereas a sociopath or 
a sociopath wakes up the next day and says, bit someone's face off, totally meant to do that. So by that rationale, they can't play the insanity plea. The insanity plea goes off the feeling that you didn't know what you're doing and otherwise are a perfectly upwardly mobile member of society. Granted, you don't uh, have your white cells go gaflui again. So that is the difference. The point of the insanity plea imperfect use is that this person won't hurt other people again and and would not hurt somebody else to the point where they need to be taken out of society forever. A sociopath, you cannot undo those. You can't undo the thought that they are born. You can't undo the motor neurons that make them behave the way that they do. No. How'd I go? Some of the key symptoms that, so the the psychopathy checklist is a 20 item checklist. So it's looking at 20 different aspects um, and it measures them on a scale of zero, one or two. So zero is not present at all. One is somewhat present, I believe. And then the second one is definitely present. Did you take the, do you have the checklist? I mean, not in its entirety, no, but I have like the basic outline of it. He, he gives us, he, so he never gives, I don't think, I don't really look at the index of this book, but he doesn't really give the entirety of the, um, test. Typically with measures and it, what's true for um, the psychopathy checklist is that you have to pay for licensing in order to use it. So you can't just like print it out from online. I mean, there are some measures that you can do that with like the patient health questionnaire nine, the PHQ nine or the generalized anxiety GAD seven. I don't know what it's actually called because I just call them PHQ nine and GAD seven, but yeah. You can print those and take them yourself if you want, although I don't recommend it. But no, I've, we've flunked them hard. Um. <laughs> well, I don't recommend it because it, it needs to be interpreted by yes. a professional, not professional. You. Wait, so, so you can't tell if I'm a psychopath or not? <laughs> I don't think you're a psychopath. I, you're too anxious to be a psychopath. <laughs> I apologize to chairs when I bump into them. I am not a psychopath. <laughs> One of the markers of psychopathy is that they don't have anxiety. Okay, no. no. Who the fuck can relate to that? I'm sure people... I'm, there are I've some never met a person who's, I've met a lot of really confident people who still have anxiety from time to time. I think you just know a lot of people with anxiety too. <laughs> um, I think there's the law of attraction there. But anxiety is also normal. normal. So like, you know, anxiety is what compels us to be prepared for an interview or a date because we want to make a good first impression, right? So we're making sure that we're fully prepared for something because of our anxiety, you know, and it's a good level of anxiety that's controllable and manageable and is going to be dissipate after the event. Which surprisingly, I'm at a good level of anxiety now. Thank you, medication and therapy, but still. Versus generalized anxiety is that you're afraid of the sky is falling, the sky is falling, you know. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what it's looking at, markers are, emotional or interpersonal markers would be glib and superficial. And tell me if any other diagnosis you've ever heard of sounds familiar. Um, As I'm reading it, or after I'm done reading it, tell me. Okay, I thought of one. So emotional or interpersonal markers would be glib and superficial, egocentric and grandiose, lack of remorse or guilt, lack of empathy, deceitful and manipulative, shallow emotions. Social deviant markers would be impulsive, poor behavior controls, need for excitement, lack of responsibility, early behavior problems, and adult antisocial behavior. Yeah, I, I have. The, do, do I do I say now? Yeah, you can say. Okay, it. the first uh, the first five narcissists. Okay, personality yeah. disorder. Five in the middle is giving antisocial personality disorder. Okay. Any other you think of? I think everybody's borderline when there's something <laughs> wrong. With, when there's something wrong with somebody, I just assume they're borderline. Well, <laughs> I don't want to deal with somebody in the borderline. Let me pick some out. 
That might sound familiar. Yeah. Egocentric and grandiose. Narcissist. Well, don't name it yet. Let me name okay. the whole cluster of symptoms that I'm thinking of. So egocentric and grandiose, impulsive, poor behavior controls, need for excitement. That's about it. I'm thinking of people. Mania. Mania as well, yes. Those okay. are symptoms of mania. And people who are manic are not psychopaths. <laughs> They're just manic. They're just manic, yes. Which is usually not fun when they come out of the manic episode. Yeah, and they realize they have no money. They have no money. They had sex with someone they didn't want to have sex with. They, you know. They have bangs. They have bangs. They have, they shaved their hair. <laughs> Hi, Brittany. Hi, um, Car- uh, Carrie Fisher wanted to shave her head and convert to Judaism in a manic episode. And thankfully, somebody stopped her. Somebody said, no, no. Ma'am, this is a Wendy's. <laughs> you can cry in the Wendy's. Here's your bacon. You shave your hair. Here's your, um, here's your bakey fries. Please don't shave your head and convert to Judaism. Give it a week. He specifies, do not use these symptoms to diagnose yourself or others. No. So you think your ex is a psychopath? Fine. Mm-hmm. Not if not on paper, they're not a psychopath, but if you want to think that if you want to write a little, you're probably valid. You want to write a little mean in your live journal about them being a psychopath, you could do that, but you cannot diagnose them. So he then goes on further to kind of flesh those things out more a little bit. I like people better if I diagnose them in my head. <laughs> he mentions I looked this up. I used the x-ray tool in Kindle to look this up 12 times in this book. 12. He mentions Diane Downs. What's the deal? Who's Diane Downs? What's the deal, Bobby? Who's Diane Downs? She's the woman who shot her three children and oh. then said that a black guy did it or something. Oh, that. Okay. I can't keep the crazy people. I'm, yeah. I mean, I mean, we, not that we use the term crazy, but we just did. Sorry. I can't keep every. Yeah. I really, <laughs> I really need like more information as to why, because this book came out, I think, in the late '90s, mm-hmm. and she was convicted in 1984. So I'm like, what about Eileen Wuornos? What about that Australian lady that like killed, dismembered, and cooked her husband? Like, we're not going to talk about them. Why Diane Downs? <laughs> like, why are we focusing on her? She's the only woman that he mentions. I mean, he mentions like female. Uh, interviewees as well. Mm-hmm. So he's not just talking about like the males that h- him and his team have interviewed. He's talking about the females as well, but none by name, just Diane Downs. This was a little weird for me. Maybe they, maybe he had to get permission and he, and he couldn't. I did say this at work. This reminded me, I did say this at work the other day. I said, you know, I cannot ke- keep the mass shooters and the rapists straight anymore. There's yeah. too many. I can't keep, yeah. Can't keep the. This was this was just a funny one that um, I think this is this like reminds me of a narcissist like it it almost reminds me of Trump a little bit. I was going to say Trump, but this is this part. He says um, he's interviewing a man who's a psychopath, and he says, "My partner got a year. I got two because of a shithead lawyer." Said one of our subjects. He later handled his own appeal and saw his sentence increase to three years. I can't, I, I, God, I can't with, I can't with narcissists. I mean, we could have, we could have saved ourselves a lot of trouble if somebody just could have gotten a rib removed on each side. So another quote from Ted Bundy this time. Mm. Um, Ted Bundy, by the way, so the max score that you can get on the psychopathy checklist is 40. Mm-hmm. Bundy was a 39. <laughs> so Bundy said, guilt he remarked in prison, it's this mechanism we use to control people. It's an illusion. It's a kind of social control mechanism, and it's very unhealthy. It does terrible things to our bodies, and there are much better ways to control our behavior than that rather extraordinary use of guilt. So Bundy is telling us, guilt is not real. It's a tool of control. I don't experience it. I don't need it. There's a lot of things that are to- of tools of control 
Brassiers. Yeah, guilt, guilt, not a lot of them. Guilt, guilt, guilt is a good thing, right? Guilt, guilt is, is what thing. keeps us from like fucking people over. And we're not talking like Catholic guilt. That's badness. The guilt that stops you from hurting people, that's good guilt. He also talks about um, how psychopaths are really, really good at reading your emotions and mimicking them without you even noticing, right? Yeah. So if you're, because they detect and exploit our vulnerabilities and weaknesses. So if you're meeting a psychopath and you're talking about, oh my God, my dog died and you're crying about it, they're also going to mask that and be like, oh my God, I, that's so sad. I had a dog that died once too. I was really close with my dog. We were friends, you know? Yeah, they're good. Yeah, they're good pretend. I'm really good at that. But if you're like, oh, my dog died and I hated my dog, they would be like, oh, cool. Me I too. too. I hate I dogs. Hate dogs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what kind of fucked up person? So that's how you can catch one. Except that when you catch them in a lie, they keep lying. Of course. Yeah. The they don't care. Where they never admit to the fact that they're lying. And they lie, they continue to lie so much that they contradict themselves, but then never acknowledge that they're contradicting Because what do they have to lose? Exactly. Truly. They really do not care. They don't care. What do they have to lose? They could, worst case scenario, they could just kill you. Like, that's like the thing. What's the worst that can happen? So he he's talking about empathy yeah. in this section. So he says, in order to survive both physically and psychologically, some normal individuals develop a degree of insensitivity to the feelings and plight of specific groups of people. For example, doctors who are too empathetic toward their patients would soon become emotionally overwhelmed and their effectiveness as physicians would be reduced. For them, insensitivity is circumscribed, confined to specific tar target group. Similarly, soldiers, gang members, and terrorists may be trained very effectively as history has proved over and over again to view the enemy as less than human as an object without an inner life. However, you take these people out of these situations. So like a doctor who compartmentalizes in order to do her work properly when she's done with work and she's home is going to be empathetic towards her partner and her children and her loved ones. Um, you know, it's just in that environment where she kind of has to put the boundary up in order to maintain professionalism. Which is really hard to do by healthcare workers. It's hard for, yeah, it's so hard for hard. therapists too. And you know, soldiers who come back from war, we know very well, experience PTSD and a lot of shame and guilt from the things that they were forced to do while yeah. they were overseas or wherever they were. And what they saw and what, what they, they saw. Through. Right, yeah. exactly. Because it's not normal for a human being to do those things. No. Um, a normal human being who has empathy. Correct. <laughs> I'd like to point out that they just, that it was gang members, soldiers, and healthcare workers. <laughs> I just like to point that out. Thank you. Because I say that all the time. It's, it's really, yeah, it's really, it's really friggin' hard. He also says that, like, even though you would think that the perfect soldier would be a psychopath. No. They, it's not true because they're very, they have no allegiance except to themselves. Mm -hmm. And they're very uh, impulsive and unpredictable. So, right. like, even if, you know, if they're a soldier and you need them here for whatever soldiers do at 6 a.m. in the morning, they're going to sleep in until 10 o'clock because no. they felt like it. And they don't give a shit what the punishment is. Yeah. Especially because, like, when you're, in the military, the punishment is usually for the group. If you fuck up, oh yeah, they don't care. Like that's not going to work on them. No, yeah, they don't care. Yeah, they don't care about disappointing other people. I thought this was funny when he said he was talking about the cycle of abuse theories, right? Mm -hmm. So like the theory that psychopaths are thinks this because they were hurt and neglected and abused as children. He says, cycle of abuse theories have wi been widely accepted. Many psychopaths are eager to attribute their faults and problems to childhood abuse. 
Although their claims may be difficult to verify, there is never a shortage of well-meaning people ready to take them at face value. And I wrote all of the fucking suckers that are taken in by Jeffrey Dahmer and Ted Mm -hmm. Bundy's stories about their sad childhoods are fools. You know, like they're they're being victims of that mentality. Both Dahmer and Bundy had normal working to middle class families. I mean... They were a little abnormal, right? Like they weren't perfect families, but they didn't, they weren't abused. Which is, they weren't. If, if all it took was an abnormal childhood to make so, psychopaths, to make serious. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm not saying that people don't have horrific childhoods that they need to recover from and they need to heal from as adults that bred a lot of maladaptive coping mechanisms and a lot of mental health issues or exasperate a lot of mental health issues. Not saying that at all. However, it doesn't add up. It doesn't add up. If all it took was a if all it took was a shit childhood, there just there would just be a lot of psychopaths, and there'd be a lot more serial killers that are folks of color, right, exactly. that are folks that came from poor socioeconomic standings. Yeah, he talks a little bit about like the biological markers. Um, I actually also printed. I have an article from the American Psychological Association that talks a little bit about this and why we don't diagnose psychopathy and why it's not in the DSM. And one of the things that they noted in this article was that um, the amygdala in the brain, which is a small, like walnut-shaped uh, center, it's very in the very center of the brain, um, controls fear, anxiety, things like that. And it's obviously useful for us to have. It's our, it's literally part of our like reptile monkey brain mm-hmm. um, because our ancestors needed a fight or flight response so that they could run away from the saber-toothed tiger. It's extremely small in psychopaths. Really? They are barely affected if at all. They probably have like a fight or flight response, like for self-preservation sure. in their reptile brain. But like, like I said before, they don't have anxiety. They don't experience anxiety. They're like, couldn't be me. I don't know what that's like. <laughs> also, couldn't be me. I don't know what it's like to not have anxiety. Me either. I'm really good at it. Some of the size of a walnut when it's probably like grapefruit. I know, right? It's my big head. Um, they talk about, you know, sal- shallow displays of emotion is another marker of a, psycho- oh. a psychopath. So if you make them angry, they'll blow up for five seconds. And then it's like it never happened. Crocodile tears. Crocodile tears. I fucking hate that. I know. Wait, except in, in kids, it's just. I fucking hate that in kids, too. I, I just told- hate crocodile tears. Yeah, I've told children before. I'm like, those are crocodile tears. They're not really crying. Hey, crocodile like, tears. Like, let's talk about what's really going on right now. What up, Crocodile. In this book, he kind of makes the same point over and over again. Which is what a research does. I mean, just, I don't really, yeah. yeah, I don't know what else he's supposed to say. He talks a little bit about children. Um, over and over again, he says that the research is from males who are like age 6 to 13, which I thought was interesting and kind of like, I mean, when we're looking at research, we want to be able to generalize the results. So if you're sticking to like white males from age six to 13, how are we supposed to generalize that to like young men of color or women or or girls, I should say. But what do we know about research? What do you mean? It was done on what? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Research was just, was typically done on white males, white cis males. And I'll get to that in a second in terms of the criticism um, Mm -hmm. to this research. It limits it. Hey, one of the things that he says about like juvenile crime and violence, he says the last decade has seen the emergence of an inescapable and terrifying reality, a dramatic surge of juvenile crime that threatens to overwhelm our social institutions, which I feel like is a little bit overdramatic. It's a little dramatic. 
Uh, particularly di distressing is the staggering increase in drug use and crimes of violence, homicide, rape, robbery, aggravated assault, and the and the ever younger age at which these offenses are committed. We are constantly sickened and saddened, but no longer surprised by reports of children under the age of 10 who are capable of the sort of mindless violence that one, once was reserved for hardened adult criminals. To which I said, I feel like Robert Hare would be in support of the Battle Royale Act, which for those of you who are in the know, if you don't, you know, right? Like Battle Royale, first a, a novel, then a movie um, about children in Japan who are like literally becoming baby psychopaths. So as a consequence of that and to try to control it, they start the Battle Royale Act, which every year one class of students is placed on an island to fight to the death. Hunger Games? <laughs> well, that's where the Hunger Games got inspiration, yes. Yeah. Um, I, why do I feel like he would be in support of that? <laughs> so anyways, now let's talk a little bit about the criticism of this research. Which is always good to do. There should be, yeah, there, there should, should always be, be criticism. Criticism. Even though I'm very sensitive to it. <laughs> so, well, first of all, I also want to say that I was, he mentions, he has a few vignettes in the book where he mentions like specific people in mm -hmm. case studies kind of. And one of the case studies, I was like, oh, that sounds like a really interesting case. I want to know more. And I Googled it. And the only thing I could find was a lawsuit brought against hair by the person. <laughs> Like for defamation. Good. Which you, you gotta get permission to publish that. I mean, yeah, but it was probably unfounded. The guy, he was a lawyer oh. who murdered his wife and children. Okay, don't put the lawyer in the book. <laughs> don't put the lawyer in the book. So some of the controversy was that he's basically trying to make it so that people have to use this assessment um, so that he gets the money from it. And his response was, I made less than $35,000 a year from royalties associated with it. Which, I mean, it's not nothing. That's a pretty uh, hefty sum of money, yeah. but not really enough to live off of, especially no. when you have children. It says, Hare's concept has also been criticized as being only weakly applicable to real world, world settings and tending towards tautology. It is also said to be vulnerable to labeling effects, to be oversimplistic, reductionist, to embody fundamental attribution error and not pay enough attention to context and the dynamic nature of human behavior. It has been pointed out that half the criteria can also be signs of mania, hypomania, front or frontal lobe dysfunction. Some research suggests that ratings made using the PCL system depend on the personality of the person doing the rating. So one, this is one of the biggest criticisms is that it's a lot of it is subjective. So what you determine to be lack of empathy and remorse, I might not. Yeah, right. So that's going to result in completely different results. Especially the fact that there's like a one, two, three. Like how do you right. do a little, yeah, a little empathy, like, well, a lot empathy. Oh, it's a little bit there. Like what? Well, it's I either, think, I feel like it's either there. Empathy is either there or not. It's like pregnancy. It's either it is or it isn't. I'm a little pregnant, but not entirely pregnant. <laughs> I will be nice to I will have empathy for you sometimes. <laughs> this is, I think, a really poignant part, uh, criticism too. One forensic researcher has suggested that future studies need to examine the class, background, race, and philosophical beliefs of raiders because they may not be aware of enacting biased judgments of people whose section of society or individual lives whom they have no understanding or of or empathy. Okay. Further, a review which pooled various risk assessment instruments, including the PCL, found that peer-reviewed studies for which the developer or translator of the instrument was an author were twice as likely to report positive predictive findings. So, uh, not a perfect tool. Um, and one of my own critiques 
personally, as I'm reading this book, right, is that most of the people interviewed for it, and I think they say this in the um, APA article, most of the people interviewed were at mental health clinics or prisons. Can't really be generalized, no. that data. Um, and who do we now make up in the United States of America most of the prison population, Jordan? Black folks. Black men, yes. Yeah. So what are we doing with that information? Like, yes. our, uh, um, And he, uh, he mentions basically a lot of like, uh, people being influenced by the environment that they grew up in. And I'm like, just say, just say the quiet part out loud. Like you're talking about people who grew up in the hood. Like, let's just say the quiet part out loud. And what I think that that doesn't examine is the nuance in terms of what would be called urban trauma. So like the, just the experience of growing up in a place that is societally neglected and where you're seeing a lot of crime and violence and where you may learn that that's the only way to survive and get by and where you may have mm -hmm. to engage in this, those behaviors to get by. And we know that most people who live in those areas are people of color because of systemic racism. Um, and that's not addressed. And I'm like, you know, he's 92 years old now. So I don't know that he's really all there to be honest with you, but I wonder what his, thoughts would be about all of the white male mass shooters that we've had in the last decade or so, right. who usually come from working or middle class backgrounds. Like these are typically not kids who are like experiencing abuse or anything like that no. either. Sometimes parents who exhibit criminal behavior um, are that glibness. I remember one of them, I can't remember which one because there's been so, yeah, there's so many. many. I can't keep the rapists and the shooters out. But one of the can't ones that like gave gave the kid a gun and bullets and ammo and stuff like that for his birthday. And we're like, like encouraging this violent behavior or these violent thoughts that he had towards his yeah. classmates. I don't know if you remember that I, or which to yeah. me speaks of some sort of mental health issues in, in the parents, not an excuse. Like that's fucked up. You shouldn't have had kids if that's, I can rem I think I know who it is, but I don't want to verbalize it if it's wrong. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's uh, uh it was the one That's in a our, note, right? It was the one in our state, actually. So the APA article kind of examines why we don't diagnose psychopathy versus antisocial personality disorder. Some of those studying the disorder worried that a psychopathy diagnosis would stigmatize people too much, while others were concerned that clinicians would have difficulty in accurately ass assessing traits like callousness or cruel or indifferent disregard of others. So although psychopathy was included in the first two editions of the DSM, it was replaced in the third edition by antisocial personality disorder, which focuses mainly on the behavioral aspects of psychopathy, such as aggression, impulsivity, and violations of others' rights, but minimally on personality characteristics like callousness, remorselessness, and narcissism. One of the important points that it also made um, was that this is the amygdala thing that I just talked about. There's a strong genetic component, right? So like by the age of 27 months, which is a little over two years, yeah. children of people who exhibit psychopathic traits also begin to exhibit psychopathic traits. Like imagine a two-year-old. I don't know why, but it makes me think of Chucky. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. But interestingly enough, and I don't know if you remember all the way back to our first episode with Jeannie the Feral Child. I do. We talked a little bit about children who are raised in Romanian orphanages under Cusico. I don't know how you say his name, his regime, um, who are emotionally neglected and how they quote unquote turned out um, and that it was an unintentional study in that kind of yeah. emotional deficit in children. But 
they found kind of similar things as this study, which says that the more that ch the children's adoptive parents use positive reinforcement at 18 months, the less likely the children were to develop these antisocial behaviors at mm -hmm. 27 months. So strong evidence that nature and nurture both matter and that even a child of a psychopath is not necessarily going to be a psychopath depending on the parenting that they receive. Correct. <sighs> there was another point I wanted to make. The amygdala. Oh, so this researcher, Chris Patrick, PhD, not Chris Kirkpatrick. No, that's a thing. different guy. Um, he, whenever I think of him, I think of when he guest starred on um, the Fairly Odd Parents as Chip Skylark with a song about his teeth. Oh yeah, that was your shiny teeth and me. Anyways, so no, not Chris. He, he was a Backstreet Boy. He wasn't insane. Backstreet. No, he was insane. Okay, all right, never mind. So not Chris Moving Kirkpatrick, on. but Chris Patrick. Um, so Hare's approach is a kind of a two-pronged model, but Patrick um, puts forward a three-pronged model or triarchic model, which posits three separate, separable trait constructions underlying psychopathic symptoms. Disinhibition, which includes tendencies towards impulsiveness, irresponsibility, difficulty regulating one's emotions and behavior and mistrusts of others. Meanness, which mm -hmm. involves deficits in empathy contempt towards toward an inability to bond with others and predatory exploitativeness and boldness which includes dominance social assurance emotional resilience and adventurousness each of these traits has unique developmental features and neurobiological correlates so we're approaching it from three different directions so that like you can have a combined traits of two of those things but if you only have one you're probably not a psychopath okay kind of this is why there's not that many of them running around. So the last thing I want to leave us with before you have questions, unless I've already answered you your answered question. Them all. That's why we, yeah, that's how the dialogue happens. Um, notable psychopaths? Yes, some notable scores. So mind you, um, the cutoff in the UK is 25 for psychopathy and 30 in the United States. So okay. if you have anything below that, if below 30 in the United States, you're not a psychopath. 25 in the UK, you're not a psychopath. So they're nicer. Which is which is interesting which is weird. Because, yeah, that's weird. Well, in the UK has a totally different system in terms of criminology. Like they approach it from a completely different way. Hmm. I took a criminal psych class when I was there and they were like, well, the FBI is as good as Scotland Yard. And I was like, excuse me, bitch. No, I wasn't. I just sat there and nodded. Uh -huh. like, pip, pip, cheerio. Okay. So Ted Bundy, like I said before, was reigning champ, 39 out of 40, but not perfect. I don't want him to feel good about him. Here's an interesting one. Jeffrey Dahmer, 23. Well, remember how we said he was a loser. We mentioned he was a loser serial killer. Not even that good at it. Canadian serial killer uh, duo, Paulo Bernardo and Carla Homolka were assessed. Mm -hmm. Bernardo was a 35 out of 40. Homolka, a 5 out of 40. She, but she was considered a malignant narcissist, which, which makes sense. Which we don't Tracks. like either. Barbie and Ken killers. Yes. John Wayne Gacy was a 27. Okay. Good enough for, good enough for England. This is another one I thought was interesting. Uh, Gary Ridgway, the Green River killer, who, let me see exactly how many people he was convicted of murdering during our lifetime. But yeah. 49 counts yeah. of murder, but there are more probably that he wasn't convicted of as is usual. 19. It's really hard to be a psychopath. Eileen Wernos, 32. Oh, yeah. She had some 
I think she had some other things going on too. If you listen to the way that she talked about things, I think that there was, I think she was a psychopath, but oh, yeah. I also think that she had some other mental illnesses going on there. Like um, schizophrenia, something like some, yeah. something, There was something where she was detached from reality. She was a little bit. Yeah, she was, yeah, she was not standing formally on the, yeah, the, yeah, the elevator would go all the way to the top of the stairs. She slid off the cracker. I'm curious. They don't mention it, but I'm curious, um, in the same vein, what, uh, Richard Ramirez was because he was also like real out there in terms of the things yeah. that he said and, but maybe it was that we don't know it could be we'll never know I think both of them are considered to be like kind of low intelligence people simple knowledge base we call you it you have like you have people like Ted Bundy who are very highly intelligent yeah. very or it's organized versus disorganized serial killers so I thought that was interesting. And let me let me leave you on the drama. I like the drama. Some drama for your mama. So basically, you don't have to be a psychopath to kill a bunch of people and suck. No, not all psychopaths are killers and not all killers are psychopaths. psychopaths. Essentially, what Hare says is that you're more likely to have your bank account drained by a, a psychopath than anything else. Right? right. Like, they're more likely to con you into or out of something. Right. Um, than they are to physically harm you. However, there is always a chance. Yeah, they wouldn't rule it out. They wouldn't be against it. They make perfect subjects to be serial killers because they don't care about anything right. about themselves. And kind of satisfying. With a great hitman. So essentially what Robert Hare's commentary was, like he has a whole, there's a whole nine page commentary. Oh God. Um, I'm not gonna read the whole thing. I didn't I mean, we have thing. a show based on our commentary, but still. But still, on John Ronson, he We're was- We're fire sign or What he essentially says is like, I, he contacted me to be interviewed for the book. I told him, I encouraged him to go to a training that was in Wales because John Ronson's based in the UK. He went to the training and came out thinking that he was like an expert on this. I, it's like the people that take one yoga class. Oh, I was gonna say, it. I was gonna say the people who take like an IQ test on Facebook and think that it's accurate. <laughs> like, or they take like one yoga class and they're meditating at the Taj Mahal. So after the workshop, Ronson wrote, I still don't quite know what the narrative of the book might be, but if you're willing to be a kind of on the page mentor, even fellow traveler, I think it would be wonderful. I would keep you totally abreast of the way the book's going. This did not happen. I only learned about the book when Condé Nast GQ magazine asked me to keep, help fact check on an excerpt from a draft version, which in fact was not very factual. And he keeps like, ooh, just dragging. <laughs> yeah, he keeps saying like, apparently he says, uh, Ronson tells his readers that he started the PCLR workshop a skeptic, but came away a quote, he puts in quotes, a Bob Hare devotee, and he keeps putting Bob Hare in quotes. Like, this man is not on a nickname basis with me, but he's calling me by my nickname. <laughs> Who even knows if he goes by Bob? <laughs> Bobby. He goes by Burt. Damn it, Bobby. He goes by Burr. Burr. Ob. Burr. He goes by me. My friends know I go by Ob. <laughs> my friends call me Bobber. <laughs> <laughs> oh man so yeah i mean that, that's essentially the critique that's the, is like the drums this man did not consult me somehow ended up my biggest fan um thinks he's an expert after one training and wrote a book about it and now is misinforming the public about not only what psychopathy it psychopathy is but whether or not you can as a lay person diagnose it in yourself or other people which we've noted bob here Robert, <laughs> Robert Kerr is against. He's he only the specific people can do these diagnoses. 
But yeah, it's a little bit drama in the psych some community tea. for you guys. Some tea. It's very interesting stuff. Some tea. So in conclusion, if you meet a psychopath, run. Yeah, don't. If someone wants they your don't money, want to be your friend, charge them interest. No, just don't give them money. Don't give them. Don't money. give anybody money. No, for any reason. No, ever. No, don't. I don't know. <laughs> give gifts. Venmo. Don't even do that. Well, don't give I, don't give away any of your money to only they paid on their card for dinner be like my be like my great grandmother and keep all of your money in your knitting bag because you don't trust the bank <laughs> <laughs> i don't give a fucking give you ravioli okay, okay. Any, anything else my friend no no we actually if you look at my notes they kind of just you kind of went right along ah uh, yes yes that well the ah, rarity ah. i think it's well, a, we them. well the rarity was hard to say because but the this article from the apa says 1.2 of u.s adult men and 0.3 to 0.7 percent of u.s adult women are considered to have clinically significant levels of psychopathic traits those numbers rise exponentially in prison where 15 to 25 percent of inmates show these characteristics makes sense but it, i mean 1.2 percent is a lot of people that's a lot that's of like in the millions of people yes so be careful out there, folks. And if you're listening and you're a psychopath, stop listening. I don't, wait, we don't we're like not you. friends. We don't like you. Well, that was a beautiful episode. Yeah, that you was did such a good job. So, so much talking. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. I feel like the, like the episodes that are psychology based have so much more room for nuance. Like mine are like, this is the diagnosis that either is or it isn't. Right, Your exactly. kidneys work or they do not work. This is what blood force trauma does to the head. So it's interesting to kind of, because, well, they do coincide with each other and they do correlate with each other, but it's fa it's fascinating. Yeah, and I mean, that's, that's why you'll find in, especially among clinicians, um, a lot of critique of the medical model of psychology and therapy because... Mm -hmm. It, it doesn't the, work. The black and white does not apply no. when you're talking about mental health. You know, there's a lot there's a lot of nuance and a lot of things to consider. I mean, even the um, the diagnosis of, what is it called? Not conduct disorder, not disinhibited social disinhibition. Yeah, that's how, well, she's looking at, that's how, like, medical versus nursing, the medical, like, the physician model is way more, they have this, then we do that. And nursing, it's more, well, what about this factor and that factor and that, which is why they're squabbling at times. But it's important to have both. No, I just wanted to say it out loud. Oppositional defiant disorder gotcha. is a very, it's a pretty controversial diagnosis because mm -hmm. it is, it relies entirely on this child is not doing what I'm telling them to exactly. do. And sometimes that's a good thing. And, you know, is it because there's something, do we have to pathologize that? Or are you just a fucking asshole that this kid doesn't want to listen to? Like, no child owes you their respect. Exactly. And um, it also doesn't take into account whether or not that that is a indication that the child has experienced trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which you need to treat a child entirely differently if they've experienced trauma than if they're just, like, unruly to every adult they meet. Right. Which is a totally different thing. Yes. And you're going to see more of the former than the latter. Mm -hmm. Well, since you talked for an hour, I'll tell people where to find us. Okay. Well, I talked to. Um, so you can find us at BioPsychPod on Instagram. And we are BioPsychosocial, a podcast on Facebook. Fuck Twitter. Um, stay away from psychopaths. And remember, having fun isn't hard if you've got a library card. <laughs> we love you. Butterfly in the sky. sky. That's from Arthur. I can't um, no, it's not. It's from the Reading Rainbow.
about No, sex. having fun isn't hard <laughs> when you got a library card is from Arthur. Who did I think was the name of the guy who did Reading Rainbow? Oh god, I so can't it's remember. Completely different. I got like Phil Lamar. Phil no, it's Lamar Burton. Lamar Burton. <laughs> he was close. also in Star Trek and Roots. Alright. Bye! Bye.